The book of Revelation gives us in its uh, introduction uh, chapter an outline uh, that we can use uh, in Revelation 1, verse 19. Uh, John was instructed to write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And so uh, it's kind of an outline of the book itself in terms of the content of what jo uh, John writes about in the book of Revelation. And we're beginning a brand new section, and it's the last section, and it's a uh, longer section, and it's uh, with regard to the things much, which, must, which must take place after this. And uh, so it's from chapter 4 through chapter 22 is a uh, clear view um, from God's perspective of future things. Uh, and they're given to us, and sometimes in details that we understand easily, and other times details that we're like, I don't understand this all that easily. And sometimes with not as much detail as we would like. Uh, like, Lord, I want to know more about that. And um, in preparing, I, I read many commentators who had lots of questions that they didn't know the answers to as well. Um, but I found one comment helpful that might be helpful for us to keep in mind as we go through this portion of scripture from Revelation 4 through the end, is that we're given enough information, uh, the right amount of information, to have what we need to have. Uh, John in his gospel wrote that uh, he supposed if everything that Jesus did and said were written in books, that the world itself could not contain the books. And uh, our Bible isn't that thick, praise the Lord. Uh, but we, we are given exactly what we do need. And Revelation is part of that. Uh, where he's given us the details that he wanted uh, and hasn't given us the details that we have necessarily wanted. And so we're going to uh, be content with the Lord, what the Lord has given to us. And uh, from chapter four forward, we're given a, a variety of perspectives in heaven, but the main theme is God's judgment upon the earth. But before God's judgment comes on the earth, we're given in chapter four and five of Revelation a picture of what's going on in heaven. It reminds me of an Old Testament story uh, that underlines the, important, uh, the importance of having uh, spiritual eyes when looking at earthly things. Uh, perhaps you know the story of Elisha uh, and his servant. Uh, Elijah, uh, Elisha had a servant uh, who served him, and he had been prophesying by telling the king of Israel the secret conversations that the other king, the king in Syria, was having. And the king in Syria is like, all right, who's the traitor among us? And they're, they're all like, nobody's being a traitor among us. There's a God in heaven, and he speaks to his prophet, and what you whisper in your wife's ear, he tells the prophet. So uh, it's not us, it's the prophet. And he's like, all right, I'm going to go and kill that prophet. Where is he? And they go to where his house is at. They go to the city that's there, and he surrounds the entire city with his army. They had chariots and horses, which would be the equivalent of like tanks and helicopters. So imagine like you wake up in the morning in Valley Springs, and you look out your window, and you see like, you know, tanks and helicopters, and they're all pointed at your house. Um, how that might impact you emotionally um, was how uh, Elisha's servant was impacted. Uh, the story, if you want to read it later on, it, <clears throat> is in Second King, Second Kings, chapter six, verses eight through twenty-three, uh, and Elijah's servant looks out the window and says, "Alas, my master, what shall we do?" 
<clears throat> and he's, he's pretty freaked out. And I would say rightfully so. If any of us saw what he saw, we'd be like, oh no. <laughs> and uh, the problem is, is he's just seeing uh, what can be seen with physical eyes. Uh, Elijah, when he looks out the window, he's not freaked out at all. When he looks out the window, uh, he prays for his servant instead. Uh, and this is his prayer. Uh, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And it was the Lord's army surrounding the army that was surrounding them. Uh, so if I've been teaching math to my youngest son, and you know, we're looking at circles, and bigger circles have bigger radiuses and you know, circumferences. And so there was a larger army outside of this smaller army. And because there was God's army there, he wasn't freaked out. He looked out and he saw the same army in the world that his servant saw. Um, but he wasn't scared and he wasn't freaking out because he saw what the Lord was doing. And that even though the situation may be out of his control personally, it wasn't out of God's control. God had it nailed down. There was no need to worry because he could see what God was doing. And that's what we're given in the book of Revelation. In chapter 4 in particular, uh, an invitation to view things from heaven. Um, because even though we're given all of the judgments of God being poured out on the earth, the perspective isn't from earth's perspective. The perspective from chapter 4 through chapter 19 is from heaven's perspective looking down on earth. And it's God's view of the future judgment, not a, a view from earth, but a view from heaven. Um, in my reading in uh, some leadership books, they often uh, make a lot about beginning with the end in mind. And what I've discovered in my reading of management material when I first became a manager and I was like, I don't know what I'm doing, I need to read some books. I found out that most of the best books for management were written by Christian authors who got most of their inspiration from scripture. Uh, and so beginning with the end in mind is not just a good business idea, but it's a biblical idea. And it's what God wants us to do throughout the book of Revelation is to from where we're at now, remember how the story will end. Uh, when I was younger, and uh, I went to, I think it was uh, Disneyland, and they had just came out with the Indiana Jones ride, and if you've been on that ride where the big ball's rolling towards you, um, it's scary if you're eight. <laughs> um, but I realized that everybody came off the ride and they weren't squished, so I knew how it ended. <laughs> like, I don't know how I'm not gonna be squished right now, but <laughs> it's more exciting when you know you're not gonna die. <laughs> uh, and it's less nerve-wracking, but it still can be, you know, enjoyable because you know how it ends. And I feel like a lot of these uh, business books have traded uh, the gold bars of scripture for uh, Monopoly money uh, to make the best of the game of Monopoly, where they want you to begin with your business end in mind so you can get what you want out of your business. Uh, when what's better is that we begin with the end of eternity in mind and really evaluate uh, what life ought to be like now. And so, we're going to uh, gain perspective to get perspective. And in order to gain that perspective, uh, John is invited um, in a similar way from when he was first invited to follow Jesus. Um, perhaps if you remember the beginning of the book of the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus was calling his disciples the very first time, and the disciples were like, where are you going? 
And his answer was, come and see. Uh, here, John is being invited once again to come and see. Uh, it's a phrase I use often, or a modified version of it. Uh, and for a long time, I think it kind of bothered my wife when I would tell her. She's like, well, what's going to happen with this? And I was like, we're going to have to wait and see. <laughs> and she's like, oh, OK. And the first time I said it, she's like, oh, OK. And then the next time, she's like, well, what about this? I'm like, we'll have to wait and see. She's like, hmm. <laughs> third time, she's like, I don't like that answer. <laughs> And now, when people ask her what's going to happen, she's like, oh, we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> and that's the journey that we're going to go on with John from this point on through the rest of Revelation, is we're going to come with John and see what he wants us to see. Notice how he begins uh, there in verse 1. Uh, he, he wants uh, Christians everywhere, uh, himself included, uh, Christians are called to have a heavenly perspective, and it begins with John uh, and the call that he has. Notice there, verse 1, after these things I looked. After what things? Uh, the, the, there's a chronology to what's happening here. Uh, the book of Revelation is obviously uh, prophecy, um, but it's prophecy couched in a narrative. And what I mean by that is John's telling you what's happening to him as it's happening to him. Um, if you've ever gotten a story from a five-year-old, you've experienced this. It's normally <laughs> has the phrase that's repeated, and then, and then, and then, and then. And this is a phrase that's also repeated throughout the book of Revelation. John is taking us through his experience of what he experienced. And so this is one of those markers at the beginning there in verse uh, 1. He says, after these things, after what things? After he was told to uh, dictate seven letters to seven churches after he was done writing that last letter and you know, for the last period. After that, after that happened, this is what happened. It says, uh, it tells us what John sees. And he, what he sees, what John sees is a door standing open in heaven. Notice what again, it says, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. Uh, the door uh, standing open, it, it's uh, a lot of what John sees and hears here is reminiscent of what he wrote in some of the letters. So there were doors that God was standing behind and knocking on. Just in the last church we viewed, in the church before that, there was a door that he opened that no man could shut, and uh, doors that he would close that no man could close. Here we see a door that's open into heaven. Uh, there's no guards, it would seem, and this open door comes with an open invitation. Uh, for us, as well as John, uh, when John says, I looked, he says, and behold, that word there, behold, is a command for all of us. I want you to see what I see. Um, again, if you have little ones uh, and they've found something that's super exciting to them, um, you know, some piece of trash that was behind the garbage can and they're super excited about it, and they're like, hey, <laughs> look, look, look. They're not content until you look. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's nice. <laughs> uh, John is super excited about what he's just seen, and he's going to tell us, uh, and he actually uses this phrase, I looked and behold, nine times, this being the first time uh, between now and Revelation 19. Um, he's like, wow, I'm seeing this. Are you seeing this? Are you seeing what I'm seeing? I want you to see what I see here. And he sees this open door, uh, this open uh, invitation into heaven, uh, throughout scripture, there are uh, a variety of people who have seen open uh, doors or openings, uh, haven't opened up to them. Ezekiel, in his first chapter of his prophecy, he says that he saw 
of the heavens opened and he saw a vision of God. Uh, at Jesus' baptism, we're told that the, the heavens were opened. Uh, the stoning of Stephen, he saw heaven open. Uh, Peter's vision of the unclean animals that God told him to eat came from the heavens. The, the heavens opened up and here comes this unkosher food from heaven. Uh, and here, um, the second coming of Christ in Revelation 19 uh, the heavens are opened again, and Jesus comes from them. But the heavens are open, and from this opening in heaven, uh, we are told what John hears. And what John hears there in the second part of verse 1 is a voice speaking to him. Notice he says, And the voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me. Uh, this voice is uh, the same voice as it is in chapter 1. Uh, which is revealed to be the voice of Jesus in chapter 1. Uh, it sounds the same in the sense that uh, the, the sound of which the voice was heard was like a trumpet. Uh, not that it sounded exactly like a trumpet, but it had the same characteristics of a trumpet in that uh, it was clear, it was distinct, uh, it was stirring, it was uh, giving direction, if you would, to direct his attention to the one speaking Jesus had earlier in John's life made a promise uh, to the disciples uh, that they would, uh, before they saw death, see the kingdom in its glory. Uh, and he told this to his disciples that not all of you will die before you get to go and see heaven. And immediately after that, there's the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus is transfigured before them and in his heavenly glory before them. And uh, certainly that's an, a taste of heaven, uh, but that's more of heaven coming down to earth and them seeing Jesus in his glory. And John was a part of that, along with uh, James, his brother, and Peter. And Peter, not knowing what he was saying, said, Lord, let's stay here forever. Um, but I think the fuller fulfillment of what Jesus promised is here in Revelation, with John being invited into heaven to see God's kingdom from heaven's view. And uh, he has a lot to say, and, and there's a lot that he sees. Notice uh, the command that's given uh, to John. The command John is given is, come up here. Uh, and I'm not really sure how uh, voluntary this command was, like did he have a choice in it? The way it, that it is in the grammar, it's, it's implied that he has a choice. Uh, the next verse says, immediately he was in the spirit and in heaven. So I'm not sure if he was like being told to do it or being informed about what was about to happen. Um, either way, he was invited up into heaven. Uh, the command is to come up here. Uh, it was not uh, man's perspective that God wanted John to have on God's future judgment, but God's perspective. Uh, this is the perspective every believer should have and seek to have. Uh, Paul would write to uh, believers in Rome and in Corinth that they're supposed to be heavenly-minded. Uh, he wrote to the Corinthians and, uh, sorry, Corinthians, the Colossians in Colossians chapter three, uh, that believers are called to uh, have a heavenly mindset. He says, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on things of earth. Uh, it's the mindset we are to have. Um, it's the perspective from which we are to see things. Uh, in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, 
uh, how, we are, how we live is a reflection of our mindset, uh, Romans 8, 5, and 6. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Our mindset is exceptionally important to God, and this isn't any clearer than in a very uh, unusual conversation Jesus has with one of his disciples. Uh, Jesus had just asked his disciples, uh, who do men say that I am? And they give all of these different you know, wild theories, like, oh, you're a prophet, you're Elijah, you're, you know, all of these different things. And then Jesus is like, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter's like, oh, well, you're the Christ. And Jesus is like, blessed are you, Peter. <laughs> Flesh and blood have not revealed this to me, but you're my father in heaven. And then Jesus goes on to say, start talking about how he was going to be crucified. And then Peter's like, well, I'm the blessed one whom the father speaks to, so I'm going to rebuke Jesus now. Because Jesus is obviously confused about what the Messiah is supposed to do. The Messiah is not supposed to die. He's supposed to rule and reign. And so he takes Jesus aside and starts rebuking him. And then uh, the very next thing Jesus says to Peter, after saying, blessed are you, is, get behind me, Satan. Like, that's got to be a rough day. Like, do you put hearts around your calendar on that day, or <laughs> do you not? <laughs> like, Jesus said I was blessed. He said, God speaks to me. <laughs> I'm going to leave out the other part. <laughs> but the reason why... He tells Peter and calls Peter Satan and says, get behind me, Satan. He says, you are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Peter was evaluating Jesus' statements from a worldly standpoint, not a heavenly one. Because from heaven's perspective, Jesus dying on the cross, good thing. From an earthly perspective, Jesus dying on the cross, bad thing, <laughs> right? And Jesus called Peter Satan <laughs> because of the mindset that he had, because of how he was evaluating what he was hearing, because of how he was evaluating what he was seeing. As believers, the mindset we should have and seek is the one from heaven. And the invitation that John is given to come up here uh, should be a reminder to us to elevate the way we see and evaluate what we both see and hear in the world. Are we seeing things like Elijah's servant? Uh, we're looking out our window and freaking out. <laughs> or are we looking through the door that John is seeing into heaven? And it makes all the, the difference. Uh, it's not that there aren't things that are crazy that are going on in the world. There are, um, but that's not all that's there. Uh, notice the second part of verse 1, rapidly moving on. <clears throat> Future hope begins with the Lord on the throne now. Future hope begins with the Lord on the throne now. Notice the second part there in verse 1. John isn't just given a command to come up here, he's given a promise. The promise given to John is, I will show you things which must take place after this. So the command, come up here. The promise in following that command is, I'm going to show you some things. And the things that he's going to show him are future things. Uh, the phrase there, take place after this, uh, the verse ends and begins with the same phrase in the original language. It's the same words exactly as after this. 
So John gives a chronology in his life, but now the Lord's speaking to him about what he's going to show him in chronology of what's going on in the world. The things he's going to describe are things that haven't happened yet. They're going to be after these things. And the question could uh, be asked, well, what things is he talking about? And uh, this is a matter of great debate, and we can discuss a little bit more on different ways of interpreting Revelation on Wednesday night if you'd like to come. I'll give a brief overview of the ways in which people view these things that are after this. Um, there are at least five different perspectives, and I can give summaries of those if you're interested. Come on Wednesday, we'll talk about that then. Uh, the view uh, that we have here at Calvary is that they are still future things for us. They're not things that have happened in the past or currently happening spiritually, but there are things that are, will literally happen in our future still. And so the things that are after this that the Lord's going to show him are future things. Uh, the promises, the things that will happen will be the things that John gets a sneak preview of. And so uh, verse 2 John is immediately taken into heaven. Uh, notice what it says, immediately I was in the spirit, and then he begins describing the throne and everything around him, but uh, whether or not that was his choice to be there or not, I don't know. Um, sometimes I give my kids the choice to come up here, and other times I'm like, come up here, as I'm grabbing them <laughs> and picking them up and, and holding them in my arms. And so uh, whether it was his choice or not, we're not sure, but he's there. Uh, he was taken from where he was at to heaven. And the first thing that he sees aren't the things that are after these things. He was promised you're going to see things that will be future things, but that's not the first thing that he sees. That would be the first thing you would expect him to see. But what he sees, he also wants us to see, because again, he uses that word, behold. Notice there again in verse 1, immediately I was in the spirit and behold. He wants us to look. He wants us to consider. He wants us to think about what it is that he's seeing. Uh, and it's interesting what he sees uh, when John is taken immediately uh, into heaven uh, is the Lord on his throne. Uh, notice what it says there again. And I saw a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. And so uh, the promise of seeing future, uh, uh, the promise of seeing future things begins with seeing the Lord on his throne. Uh, it's the perspective that gives perspective to everything else that comes after this. Um, it's what's happening in heaven right now. Uh, the Lord is seated quite comfortably <laughs> on his throne in heaven. Uh, he's not looking out his window and freaking out about the current political situations. He's, he's seated. He's, he's just there. He's ruling and reigning right now. And the correct perspective for future things is not just from heaven, but the correct perspective of future things is a perspective of heaven. And that perspective of heaven is with the Lord on his throne. Uh, there is a throne. Uh, there is a God. Uh, and he's sitting on that throne. And he's not nervous about the future at all. Uh, there's uh, two great truths that are taught in scripture. It's often taught at this point uh, that there is a God and you are not him. <laughs> when, when John gets there, uh, the first thing that captures his attention isn't anything that's going on on earth. It isn't anything that's going to happen in the future, uh, but it's what's happening in the present and that's the Lord on his throne. John's vision 
is consistent with other visions that were given to men throughout Scripture. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 6 and Ezekiel chapter 1, uh, they see what John saw. Uh, and you can compare and contrast those passages if you'd like. So if you make notes for reading later, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, or Ezekiel chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 26 through 28, uh, everything that John describes is what they saw as well. And it's hard for them to describe what they're seeing. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever been to a foreign country where you experienced new and different things, and then you came back to America talking to Americans who have never been anywhere, and you're like, well, it's kind of like, it's sort of, <laughs> it, it, it looks a little bit, it feels a bit, it's like a little, and you can't, really, you can't really put your finger on it with your words because there's nothing quite like what you experienced there. And Paul, when he went to heaven, he was like, it would be unlawful for me to tell you with words <laughs> the things I saw. And Paul was very good with his words. Uh, it reminds me of a phrase, my uh, son, who's very excellent with his words. All my boys are a little bit different. I have one of my, one of my boys has got an amazing vocabulary, uh, not just for his age, but just in general. Um, so like most kids, when they're going someplace, they're like, are we there yet? Uh, that's not him. He says, have we, when are we going to arrive? <laughs> that was him at like four. I don't know when we're going to arrive. <laughs> Uh, but one time we were asking about, about something uh, that he didn't necessarily want to talk about, and he's like, I have no words. <laughs> it's like, you have all the words. <laughs> but that was Paul. When he was asked about, you know, when he's like, I've been to heaven. I don't know if I was in the flesh or in the spirit or what was going on, but it would be unlawful for me to tell you the things that I saw because it wouldn't do it justice. And so there's a lot of picturesque language that's used whenever people are given and giving descriptions of heaven because there's nothing quite like it. And yet John here is told to write all of these things. So he's, he's off the hook. <laughs> it's not unlawful for him to write these things. God asked him to write these things. In fact, there's actually things he was going to write that God was like, don't write that thing. Um, but we'll, we'll explore these pictures and these symbols to the best of our understanding. But what he sees is consistent in terms of language um, and description to what others have seen who had visions of heaven. Um, and consistently, what they see and what they make note of is that the Lord is on his throne. There's a, a king in uh, the Old Testament, not, not a king of Israel, but Daniel, when he was... Uh, taken into captivity, there was a king who was given a vision of what the future would be like, and part of that future was his kingdom not existing anymore. He was supposed to be the head of gold, and you know it's going to crumble from there. It's only all downhill from there, and so it's supposed to be the statue that had a, a head of gold, and you know it's slowly getting down to, you know, clay and iron at the feet, and a rock comes and destroys it, and God's kingdom is being set up, and. So he doesn't know what this dream means. Daniel tells him what the dream means. And so he then goes and builds a statue that's all gold. I'm like, there's not going to be no other kingdom. My kingdom only. <laughs> it's going to last forever. And uh, that's not what the Lord said. And God gave him another warning in a dream of, uh, you know, a tree being cut down and its stump <laughs> and having a brass ring around it. It's not going to grow again. And uh, he's like, if, you, if you're not going to honor God, God will take the honor from you. And he, in the thought of his own 
head that was thinking about the future apart from God, what is this great Babylon that I have made? And in that moment, God took it away. Made him as a beast of the field where he was eating grass for seven sevens, because that could be seven years, seven seasons, we're not really sure, but he went crazy for a little bit. And when he, can't, when he got out of that crazy time, uh, he wrote a letter, and he's like, there is a God in heaven, <laughs> and it's not me. <laughs> and he was the ruler of the world at that time, and he's like, I understand that I am not that, and that the Lord is able to humble those who walk in pride. He understood that, and he was trying to write a letter so that everybody else would understand that. Um, but there's a God in heaven, and he's on his throne, and he's unbothered uh, by anyone else on any other throne. Um, and in fact, we're told of others on other thrones in heaven. Uh, most throne rooms don't have other thrones for people to sit on. That'd be quite awkward, mostly, um, except for uh, the family of the king. So if there's a throne for the king, sometimes there's a throne for the queen. Uh, if he has a son, there's a throne for the prince. If there's a daughter, there's a throne for a princess. Those thrones are acceptable because they're family. Uh, and in heaven, we see that there is the Lord on his throne, and there's uh, the descriptions that are there are picturesque. I'm not going to dive deep into those this morning. Um, but we are told that everything else in heaven, verses 4 through 7, and this is where I promised I'd go quicker, for those of you keeping track of time, uh, everything else in heaven is focused on the throne. Notice that the Lord on his throne is the focus of heaven, verses 4 through 7. Uh, in, in terms of description, uh, everything is either around the throne, from the throne, or before the throne. There are two things that are described as being around the throne. The first is there in verse 4. Uh, around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And so... Uh, we see these people who are sitting on thrones, clothed in white, uh, with crowns on their head. And if you have been taking notes and remember the last few studies, uh, there were promises of white clothing, promises of crowns, and promises of sitting on thrones. <laughs> uh, and it's for that reason and for uh, the reason of the song that they sing in the next chapter in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 10, uh, the song they sing is a song that only redeemed people can sing. Uh, the song that they sing in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 10, uh, says, uh, for uh, the 24 elders sang a song of praise to Jesus, and they cried out, for you uh, were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. Uh, in this passage, it's clear that this is God's people who are redeemed by the Lord. Uh, we're told in the book of Hebrews that he did not die for angels. He died for people. Uh, the only redeemed that are described in Scripture uh, that are in heaven are people who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And so uh, whatever group of redeemed people that is, uh, God has redeemed people throughout Scripture, whether it's the 12 tribes represented there and the 12 apostles represented there. Uh, we're not entirely sure, but we, we are sure that these are God's people who have been redeemed by the Lord. And they're there in heaven with him. They're around the throne, but they're described in relationship to Jesus or the Lord on the throne. And so 
their place in heaven is described in relationship to him. Also around the throne towards uh, the end in verse 7, we're told that there are uh, different living creatures uh, around the throne that are have these wild appearances. Uh, Again, we're not going to get into the details of that this morning, but the thing to note is that they're around the throne, and uh, next week, uh, Lord willing, Pastor Art will do a deep dive into the songs that they sing, both the the 24 elders and these uh, uh, cherubim, these angels that are around the throne, Uh, but they're all around the throne, but they're described as being around the throne. The focus of heaven is not what's going on here on earth, uh, but it's what is going on in heaven, and it's not even like the side details of what's going on in heaven. It's the Lord on his throne. Uh, from the throne, uh, we are told that there's, there are sights and sounds. The sights are lightning uh, coming in verse uh, 5. From the throne proceeded lightnings, thunders, and voices. Um, and so, uh, again, this is a picture that's consistent with these other Old Testament passages that speak of what uh, heaven is like. Before the throne, there are seven lamps of fire. There's a glassy sea, um, and uh, the four living creatures are described as being before the throne and around the throne, and so they're they're there again as well. And they're all focused on the Lord on his throne. Again, uh, the passages to look there um, are in uh, Isaiah 6, uh, Ezekiel chapter 1, and also Ezekiel chapter 10, if you'd like to read that uh, and, and see the, the fuller biblical description. Uh, and we can discuss maybe some of the similarities and differences of what they see uh, compared to John. But for me, there's uh, a handful of clear application for us uh, this morning from this passage uh, if you're a new believer, you should know that the, the right perspective to have is a, a perspective that only comes from God on the things that are going on in our life or even out our window, uh, politically speaking. Um, we're in another round of uh, election season cycle, uh, and even the secular world around us is like, uh, <laughs> I don't want to have to deal with this again. Uh, and when we look out the window, we should also look through the door uh, of heaven and see things uh, not that are just going on earth from earth's perspective, but from God's perspective. Again, believers were to have uh, a heavenly mindset. We're supposed to set our mind on heavenly things. Um, it can be tempting uh, to get lost in a, a Netflix series and, you know, binge a couple of seasons of something to kind of take your focus off of whatever problems are going on in life. Um, But the better approach is to search the scripture and get God's perspective on what's going on in life. Uh, There's a book that I I like to use in uh, discipling at times, uh, and it's uh, called Self-Confrontation, and it has to do with allowing God's scripture to confront you (laughs) with you and the sins that are going on in your life and how you can Uh, be used after that's done to help people in their life uh, through biblical counseling. Uh, But step one, every time, it's the same step one, is God's view. What does the word of God say on this issue? And is that the perspective from which I'm taking this? God's view is the view uh, that we're supposed to have. It's it's the, the end that we're supposed to consider at the beginning. Um, oftentimes, uh, there can be really 
tempting things to drive our decision-making paradigm. Uh, if you're a head of a household, if you're a husband who wants to provide for your family, it could be very tempting to make the, the dollar amount that you're making make the final decision for the choices you have to make uh, when it should be the Lord's direction that we have. Um, there's a way that seems right to a man, the Proverbs say, uh, but in the end, it leads to death. I, I like what Proverbs chapter 23 uh, says with regard to riches. Um, I, was re I would read through Proverbs when I was a kid, um, when I was first walking with the Lord, um, because I couldn't read well. And Proverbs is, are there like short little verses so you could take breaks? So I just read Proverbs. And I, I loved Proverbs chapter tw 23, uh, verses 4 and 5, because of the kind of question it asks. Listen to what it says. Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5. Do not overwork to be rich because your own understanding cease. And here's the question. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? And I love that as a question. And what it's implying is that riches are that which is not. It's like you're playing the game of Monopoly and more important than the relationship with the people that you're playing with, you're concerned about the Monopoly money that you have. Uh, but the game will be put away at some point. All of the money, no matter how much of it you have or do not have, <laughs> will go in the box and go back into the closet. And it will be valueless then. It will be of no value. Will you set your eyes on that which is not also implies that there is something on which you should set your eyes. Something that should be the thing through which, the paradigm through which you make your decisions. He says of riches, for certainly, uh, for riches certainly make themselves wings and flies away like an eagle towards heaven. Now, when I was a kid, I didn't really understand that as much. Uh, but now, as uh, the head of household and the chief breadwinner and the taxpayer of things, riches make themselves wings. <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to try to spend it. It spends itself, right? Uh, another proverb with regard to uh, the, the power that riches can have on our perspective and scripture putting that into perspective of heaven uh, is Proverbs chapter 11, verse 4. It says, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. I love that phrase too because of how it's phrased, riches do not profit. It's just fun to say. <laughs> Go find some financial analysis guy and be like, hey, Riches don't profit, <laughs> and you just walk away. <laughs> like, what? That makes no sense at all. It makes no sense at all from an earthly perspective. From a heavenly perspective, it's all monopoly money. Let's not do what the leadership books that I was reading do, and, and that's take the gold bars of truth of Scripture and exchange them for monopoly money. The truth is that the best perspective is a heavenly perspective, an eternal perspective. And that gives us the perspective we need, whatever we're going through. When we rejoice, is it from a heavenly perspective? When we sorrow, is it from a heavenly perspective? The hope that we hold, is it because we have a heavenly perspective? I'm gonna give you a homework assignment. Not that I haven't already. The homework assignment is to read Psalm 73. If you're gonna come on Wednesday night, we're gonna hit Psalm 73 right out of the gate. So Psalm 73 is a psalm where a guy is seeing the apparent prosperity of the wicked, and then there's a change that happens. And he ends the psalm 
with a changed perspective. And he, he says at the end of Psalm 73, verse 25 and 26, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none that I desire upon the earth besides you. I don't know what's going on outside of your window, but there's a God in heaven and he's sitting on the throne. And the desire of his heart is that the desire of your heart would be him. And that because you have him, you would have a peace that surpasses understanding. When everybody else standing next to you is saying, look out the window, don't you see? Oh yeah, I see. Dear Heavenly Father, open their eyes. <laughs> Help them to see what I see, and that's you at work. Things are not in your control, but that doesn't mean they're out of control. They're in God's control, and there's a peace we can have because of that. If you've been walking with the Lord for a while, if you would be what I would describe as a mature believer. You, you know all of these things. You know that you ought to have a heavenly perspective and that you ought to uh, value heavenly things and store up your treasure in heaven. You, you know all of those things. You could have come up here and shared all of those same points. Uh, my, my question for us with regard to those things is are you putting into practice those things? When you come to a problem, is your first question, you know, what's the IRS tax code on this? What's the contract that I signed with them? Or what's God's perspective on this? Am I evaluating this from earth or from heaven? Are you putting into practice putting God's word as the standard by which you evaluate the good and the bad and the otherwise in your life? I know you know that, but are you, are you, are you doing that? Are you, are you doing that now? We're, we're all in relationship to the problems we have in our life in, in one of three categories. We're uh, either in the middle of a trial and dealing with problems that it's right in front of us, we can't see anything else, and it's right here. We're at the end of a problem or trial that we're super grateful is over and we're praising the Lord right now. Or we're at the beginning of a trial that we don't know is going to meet us in the parking lot when we walk out of this room. We're in one of those spots, but in every season, we need the Lord. And every season, we need his perspective to reign in our life. Matthew 6, uh, 19 through 21, makes it pretty clear the application we're supposed to have with regard to the priorities of our life. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your peace in your life is dependent on the current status of your 401k, uh, then that would make sense from an earthly standpoint. But that's not the perspective we're to have. If you're here this morning and you wouldn't describe yourself as a believer in, in the Lord, um, there's a hope that we have as believers that you need. And that's that the, the craziness that's in this world it is out of control from, from the perspective through our window. But there's a God in heaven, and he sits on a throne, and he's going to judge the living and the dead. And for those who are redeemed, 
it's reason for us to sing. We're going to praise the Lord here in a minute, and it's because he sits on the throne. And the sin that's around us is going to be judged. The sin that's in us is going to be redeemed. <laughs> We're going to be redeemed out of our, the sinful bodies in which we dwell. And that gives us great joy. Uh, but what brings us joy should bring you great concern if you have not surrendered your life to the Lord. He will either be your redeemer or your judge. The wages of sin is death, says Scripture, but the gift of God is eternal life. The Bible says if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that the Lord Jesus was raised from the dead, then we shall be saved. I'm going to close us in a word of prayer, and as I do, I'm going to call the worship team forward. Uh, would you pray with me as we ask the Lord to apply these things uh, to our lives? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for you, Lord, for your love for us. Lord, that you, you are a God who's in heaven, but you are not aloof. You are not unconcerned about what's going on here on earth. Uh, it is not out of your control even now. Uh, even those in history have acknowledged that you are God in heaven and you do as you please. You raise up who you please and you put down who you please. You are able to humble those who walk in pride. Lord, I pray that each one of us would be humble before you this morning. Lord, knowing that you resist the proud but give grace to the humble. Lord, we know that we need your grace. You are a holy God. Lord, we need to be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Lord, the sin in our life is bad enough to separate us from you forever. But the forgiveness we have in Christ Jesus Lord, it's grace upon grace. It's mercies that are new every morning. Lord, it causes us to do uh, what is happening in heaven right now, which is to worship you. Lord, we pray that you would receive our praises this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.